1: Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. As you know, greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. As you know, here at New Books in History, it's our job to scour the globe in search of new history books and interview their authors. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Alice Weinreb who teaches history at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, Alice Weinreb has recently written a brand new book called Modern Hungers, Food and Power in 20th Century Germany. It was published very recently by Oxford University Press. As you know, I mean, I suppose anyone who's kind of generally aware of things has noticed that food is a hot topic these days, not just among the folks posting pictures of their dinner on Instagram, but among scholars in many fields who study its production, distribution, consumption, and connections to geopolitics. Historian Alice Weinreb's brand new book, Modern Hungers, is a most welcome contribution to this rapidly expanding field. Modern Hungers suggests just how hard it ought to be to think about German history without thinking about food. Spanning the century and its major political caesura, the world wars, the rise of national socialism and its defeat, the country's division and reunification, Modern Hungers is an ambitious study in governmentality over a diverse array of modern political regimes, imperial, socialist, and liberal democratic. And we're very lucky today to have a chance to speak with Professor Weinreb. Alice, thanks so much for agreeing to be with us today on New Books in History.
0: Thanks so much for inviting me, Monica.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I've I've always been a great fan of your work. Let's start out um, by hearing a little bit, if you don't mind, about your own kind of scholarly biography and how you got to the point that you're at now, um, maybe also folding in, if you like, some of the history of how you came to your interest in in food as a subject of history.
0: I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, So I I, uh, got my undergraduate degree, actually, uh, not in German history. In fact, uh, until I started my PhD program at Michigan, I actually had never taken a single German history class so that I came from a very kind of a different background. Um, my background was in uh, gender theory and women's history as an undergrad. And I was very interested in history of sexuality and history of the body. And um, of course, there's a, a lot of great scholarship in that field. And I was especially interested in medieval history. Carolyn Bynum is at Columbia and, and her work on actually food, women and the bodies was really inspirational to me and other people like that. Um, and after college i actually didn't know what i wanted to do but i had no interest in graduate school Um, and uh, an undergraduate teacher of mine a women's historian uh, who was a real mentor for me lisa tiersten she suggested that i study abroad um and at the time i had taken latin and german in high school so i debated going to either greece and studying classics or uh, germany and doing medieval history and i decided on germany um, and medieval history um again as a sort of a gender historian and i moved to berlin uh 1999 uh and i actually enrolled in several medieval history and medieval literature classes um and started my work but what ultimately sort of came to dominate my experience was of course not the classes i was taking and the um but the sort of everyday life that i was engaged with living in uh berlin in 1999 and i was living just coincidentally i ended up getting an apartment in friedrichshain which is uh Formerly East Berlin, and again uh, because of its convenient location to where I lived, I ended up taking courses at Humboldt University, which was the formerly East Berlin or East German uh, university. And um, my sort of everyday life was sort of shaped by the I don't know the legacy or the detritus of uh, the former GDR, um, and living in Germany generally, and also particularly living in Germany in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, was especially interesting for me because I had no background in in German history. And so um, a lot of the debates and discussions um, were... (laughs) that were actually quite normal. And I know now had been going on for decades and, and I know the context on which they came, but to me, they seemed completely mind boggling and flabbergasting and fascinating um, ways in which East and West Germans uh, discussed, discussed themselves and discussed one another, ways in which Germans um, debated their relationship to the past. Um, all of this came as a complete shock to me. And I was in some sense living it personally because I was actually in Berlin as, um, for example, I remember early on when I first moved there, there was a march through Berlin of, of people protesting against the German nation. So Germans say, you know, this again is a very familiar to people who study German history, but this idea that there were Germans who felt like the German nation was not something that did the world any good um, was something that just amazed me that there were people who would actually reject national identity on the grounds of historical events. (laughs) Those kind of things really did fascinate me and and, um, really kind of move me in in relationship to Germany as a country that I'd never really thought that much about before. And then specifically, I think, because I was living as I... Because as I said, I was living in the former GDR. My friends were almost exclusively uh, East Germans, or had been, you know, raised in the GDR, had been children in the GDR. I was I was especially interested in kind of East-West discourse, um, and I ended up actually getting a master's degree. This was uh, before university reforms in Germany, so uh, universities were free um, and uh, very easy to attend very very flexible and it was a pretty awesome also very i was just very lucky to have been there at that moment i moved there before the euro you know things were different back then <laughs> and it really was incredible i had a apartment i had an apartment with coal heating so i had to heat my water with coal as well as the actual apartment itself but the apartment was 240 deutsche mark which is about 120 dollars a month i mean it's just remarkable to, to think about that it is an it economic is. moment um and and i uh yeah and i ended up because i was living in friedrichshain and i ended up sort of furnishing my apartment and, and, and living my life, uh, shaped by the, the remnants of the GDR. So all the objects that I own, and the furniture and everything that, and as well as the cookbooks and cooking utensils that I bought were all East German. Um, and, uh, so I consumed them, you know, I purchased them or I even found them sometimes in the street. Um, and I thought about them a lot and I was very interested in them. And I was, it was also interesting to me how people who visited my apartment. So West Germans as well as East Germans would engage with, uh, these objects that for me, of course, had no history. They were just kind of attractive objects that I found, but to people visiting and seeing them, they had a lot of history, be it both positive and negative. And, and so that just got me very interested in East and West German history. And, and I ended up writing my, well, really in East Germany, I ended up writing my um, my master's thesis on the GDR, a country I had really, I think, barely heard of uh, before I went to Berlin. Um, I, my my one like cold war mem- cold war memory of the GDR from growing up in the 80s in the US is is this idea of uh, this kind of gendered idea of these incredibly massive East German women and, you know these shoulders the swimmers and this kind of drug drug this kind of gendered image of the perverse communist body from like the Olympics and that's like, the only memory I have of the GDR you know and so it was really different to go there and talk to women growing up there and people growing up there um And I ended up getting my master's degree at the Humboldt in cultural studies and gender studies. And I ended up working, uh, doing a master's thesis on essentially on food discourse in the GDR, working a lot with cookbooks. And it was really more of a, a, I'd say, a literary paper in some sense, a cultural studies paper, I guess. And um, I decided uh, largely because my family was back in the U.S. And I felt like I'd I'd been at that point living in Germany for uh, four years. and, And I felt like either I if I stay longer, I'm just going to be staying in Germany the rest of my life, and I felt like I should go back home to see my family. Um, I decided to get a PhD, and I actually uh, was torn between history and comparative literature, and I actually almost enrolled in a conflict program. So even then, I was fairly, it was not clear to me that I was going to be a German historian, Um, but I uh, very happily uh, ended up enrolling at, or accepting a position at, at University of Michigan, where there, the historians there, you know, I worked with Kathleen Canning, Jeff Ely and Scott Spector are all extraordinarily interdisciplinary and specifically quite interested in, in literature as well as history um, from a methodological and theoretical perspective as well, as well as, of course, as gender history as being a big thing. So that ended up being a kind of remarkably good home for me, something I really only you only realize after the fact how lucky you were right, um, to have gone there. And and so my project, you know, essentially my interests in some sense stayed consistent, but my methodologies and disciplines really changed. Um, over the years I guess. Yeah. Can you tell us do you do you have a do you have a memory sometimes one will have a
1: memory of the moment when one realized oh I know what I want to write my dissertation about. Do you remember having a moment like that?
0: Um <laughs> you don't have to have one. <laughs> I I mean uh, I mean to to truly answer your question a moment that I I so I guess I was interested in this kind of cliche, when I was living in, in Berlin and living in Germany and thinking about food, you know, there's this cliche about the GDR, about East Germans and the bananas and how important bananas were to the GDR and how East Germans are obsessed with bananas. And so I was interested in a socialist food economy in some way. And I thought I would go into the archives and look up bananas. And I was imagining this archival, you know, this flood of material from the East German government being like, oh my gosh, we've got to get these bananas and these kind of constant debates. And I imagine these letters of protest from... Citizens saying we need, you know, and all this kind of <laughs> drama about these things. And that was kind of I somehow thought it would be. I guess in some sense a, a conventional history of the limitations of a consumer, a socialist consumer economy, or whatever it is. And I went to the um, what was then, uh, I went, I began my research actually um in the what had been the former East German Nutritional Institute, um, which still exists in as a West. It's been sort of remade as a West German or unified German uh, institute, but. It, Survived the Venda, um, which itself is kind of remarkable. And I ended up going there, and the, at that point, and this has actually, of course, changed a lot. Some of the staff was still East German, and the librarian there was a wonderful woman who had also worked there as 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 when it was an East German institute. And she actually hooked me up with some very elderly East German nutritionists who had been sort of leading nutritionists in the GDR. And I was like very excited, and I thought they'd be able to somehow clue me into the banana material I was so interested in. And I met, met with a very um, with an incredibly wonderful guy. I think a lot of times for historians, just meeting the people themselves who sort of inspire you in ways you don't expect. So he was this elderly nutritionist. And and I said to him, you know, very incoherently because my interests were, I didn't know what I was doing. I was interested in Ernährungspolitik or the Ernährung des Essens. I mean, and I was kind of blathering about stuff and he <laughs> cut me off and he said, I know exactly what you need to write about if you're interested in the politics of food. And I was like, okay, what is it? And he said, you need to talk about canteens and Schulspeisung, the the school lunch program. And those were two things that I had literally never thought about when thinking about food and bodies. And even in all my background in gender history and history of the body and food theory and all this stuff, I had never thought about about school lunches or canteens. And they seemed singularly boring topics to me and very institutional, you know, and not the kind of thing I wanted. Like it wasn't like the stuff of bananas and chocolate or whatever. That's, you know, the passions of the gustatory passions of our lives. And I remember he gave me, he actually wrote in like very careful longhand citations for maybe 20 or 30 key um, articles and source bases on East German canteens and school lunches. And I remember he handed me this folder, painstakingly assembled folder, and I literally were putting away and being like, well, that's really, that was a real bust. And I remember spending like a couple months and looking for the stuff I wanted. And I remember then coming across them and, and saying, well, I better look them up since he made all the effort to give me these citations. And I and I looked them up and, and they were, of course, incredibly interesting. And... And then I think to kind of solidify what, you know, I started to think about canteens and school lunches in interesting ways. What then really, I think, triggered the, the project. So I was still kind of interested in the socialist economy, food economy in some way. I then decided to do brief comparative work. I thought I'd go to the West German and sort of uh, archives and find sort of equivalent sources just to kind of see what was particularly uniquely East German. Um, and I went to some West German archives and I asked the archivist for material on West German canteens and school lunches. And the archivist said, oh, we don't have that. That's not something we keep in the archives. That's not really that important. But if you're interested in Ernährungspolitik, what you have to understand is the Hunger Yara. And so this archivist set me up with this folder called Hunger Tod, which was about you know hunger deaths. And it was a very interesting folder because it was a whole bunch of medical information about the occupation years 1945 to 1949 um, and sort of tracing the the, the food catastrophe in post-war Germany and the medical, the medical crisis. But the focus of the of the material was the fact that there had actually only been one death by hunger in the entire region, and how ha- and the problem that posed for medical experts who were trying to make a case for who were actually claiming that this is a, a starvation camp, essentially that the entire this was in the area of Cologne, so the entire Cologne region was starving to death. But so essentially, all of the material was trying to explain away the only one death, quote unquote, as evidence for uh, essentially a famine conditions across the region. Mm. So what was interesting to me is not only the content, which is very interesting, but also these radically different claims about what the politics of food meant. And that those kind of parallel experiences, which happened within, you know, two weeks of one another, uh, got me increasingly interested in in understanding, I guess, uh, East Germany as um not as an isolated nation state, but as in this context, sort of an entangled history with the G- with West Germany or as these nations, how two nations can remember their past and even identify themselves vis-a-vis the same topic in such different ways. And um, so that really became my dissertation, which was in some sense, a comparative analysis of East and West German food discourse and food policy. Um, and that then ultimately, as is often the case with history, um, the archives and my sources kept pushing me back backwards in time. And I just couldn't, I felt like I couldn't do it in the diss, you know? And then finally, when you get to write your book, you're like, I'm going to do what the sources have been telling me to do, you know, for a long, long time, which is really try to conceptualize a meaningful time frame. I came to feel like the Cold War was not the key time frame I needed, um, but it was in this context, uh, the 20th century. And so that's how my book came out of that dissertation.
1: It's fascinating too. I was just, I just want to pick up on something that you said a moment ago. I, I think it's fascinating the way that you met, met two different, Two different Germans who had grown up under very different um, political systems, and how different their particular memories of what matters about food in West German history, um, you know, what that question means. Uh, um, what matters in West German history versus what matters in East German history vis a vis food? That's fascinating. Um, I wonder if we can just kind of draw back a little bit and, and get a sense now or give, give the listeners a sense of the big picture. We talk about some fascinating details about how you came to the project and the sort of uh, some of the early archival findings and how that sort of moved you in various directions. But let's come let's 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 come back to sort of the beginning in a sense of the book. And maybe you could explain uh, for listeners how food came to loom so large, not only in the indiv- in, in the individual lives of, of human beings who are, uh, you know, sort of populating your book but in the imagination of various German states. So the state has a very important role to play in this book, uh, or various German states have have important roles to play in this book. So can you talk about that a little bit and sort of explain to everyone what the, the main framing device, I guess, I would say, of the book is?
0: Absolutely. So um, in some sense, the it, from my mind as the author, the subject of my book is, is, is in some ways... Not just Germany, but the what I call the industrial food system, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and and that's uh, I have a fairly basic definition of this. It's not like I'm a, I'm not a a scholar uh, in some sense of. of the theory of, of food systems but really uh, what i identify that as is essentially um you know the 19th the starting the 19th century started in the industrial revolution the kind of continued industrialization of food food production and food consumption and then ultimately um and so you have this process by way again everybody other people have told the story in great detail um mechanization uh, uh changes in transportation changes in agriculture um that ultimately uh the shift to a cash economy all of which ultimately um uh, uh culminate in what you call a global food system um and so this happens gradually over several centuries but um i argue and my book uh sort of tries to show that world war one was the kind of decisive moment when the reality of a global food system uh became on the radar so to speak for the world and for nation states as well as for people on the ground and i would say that in some sense um the There have been various imperial famines in the 19th century that had already suggested um, that in some parts of the world, the global food system was actually leading to dearth and mass death rather than prosperity and increased food consumption. But those famines had often had been relegated largely to colonial uh, territories, and and that story was seen as being separate from or sort of maybe collateral damage for the, the story of increased wealth and power in Europe. And the west and what's interesting about world war one as a historian of the food system is that world war one suddenly shows that once the once the global food system has established itself what that means is that uh state power works through food in ways that are unavoidable in some sense in other words and that's the the military power specifically um but also economic power uh all, all forms of state power uh work with by means of and through the food system and vice versa that that modifying or controlling the food system Always is going to be a direct, is directly engaging with state power. Um, And World War I is the first war, uh, the first global war, let's say, that is fought by means of the food system. Um, I would say, and I mean, what does that mean? I mean, there's some, it's not so complicated. Um, It means that, for example, uh, all sides were pretty much claiming that food will win the war. What did that mean? That meant that hunger was an official weapon of war. on both sides so that Britain imposed the hunger blockade against Germany. Uh, The hunger blockade was a a blockade of all ships, bringing food stuff to Germany. Um, The goal was not to starve Germans to death, literally, but to uh, destabilize the home front. So extremely uh, by means of food restrictions that the government was already forced to end the war effort. Germany was doing the same thing to Great Britain. Um, The U-boat campaign was a food, was a food blockade, a hunger blockade as well, although much less successful. And then, of course, the, across the world, that is to say, in the Middle East, um, in parts of Asia, uh, this hunger as a weapon uh, strategy was being used uh, during this war. At the same time, hunger is being used, uh, food is being used as a weapon in various ways. And I, I try to unpack that in my chapter um, at, at different levels. So um, the most, I think, single most significant, and for a practical level, linkage between food production and weaponry is, the, is nitrogen fixing, which happens in, the, in relationship to World War I, right, immediately at the beginning of... At the onset of World War One, um, which is actually, uh, which is the moment when um, essentially countries have a limitless access to nitrogen. You can sort of produce uh, near unlimited amounts of nitrogen, which um, a German, a German Jewish scientist, Fritz Haber, invented essentially, discovered, and he received the Nobel Peace Prize for this um, invention right after the war, which is very controversial um, because nitrogen, of course, is used. In agriculture to increase crop production, but it's also used in, as an explosive, as a key component of explosives. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these very kind of, in some sense, graphic and deeply disturbing ways in which the industrial food system and the industrial military system overlap. And that again, that had been going on uh, for quite a while, but World War One is the kind of most is the most dramatic is the sort of revealing of this power and this and this um, the sort of high costs, but also the high gains from a state perspective of um, linking food and war in very in very explicit ways.
1: Yes, and so wh- why don't you just continue? I mean, I think this is really fascinating. Why don't you just continue, sort of walking through the book a little bit further? Um, you've begun, sort of, you know, at the beginning uh, uh, with the First World War, <laughs> and then what what are what are some of the next what are some of the next moves that the book makes, or what what are some of the next steps? I mean, they in, in some ways the book follows um, a political trajectory through the various regimes in yeah, 20th century German history, which you know, in, those of us who like yourself, and, and and me too. I mean, those of us who who like to um, write books in German history that circumvent that periodization um, still find, in many ways, that the periodization um, is is in some ways almost intractable. You one can write over, you know, one can write over the caesura of German history. You can write over 1918. You can write over 1933, 1945. But the caesura are crucial. Um, and and they're very important to the story. So I wonder if you could sort of take the next step for us and let us know, you know, where does the story continue from there after 1918?
0: Absolutely. And I mean, you you actually address one of the key sort of intellectual struggles that I had, which is in some sense, I'm, I, I feel much less invested in chronology than I do in thematics, let's say. And I had even debated writing a thematic rather than a chronological book. Um, but as you say, um, in some sense, that feels sort of disingenuous in the case of 20th-century Germany uh, to somehow like write about race in Germany 1914 to 1990 and then gender or something. It, um, and I think more importantly, I, as you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, I'm extraordinarily interested in, in states, right? And I think that states uh, that my understanding of sort of the the food system is really one about how states work with the food system. And what makes Germany in the 20th century so incredibly interesting is just the sheer number of different states that it experienced. So, you know, my book, I, I, I try to do them all, right? I have Imperial Germany, and then I have the Weimar Republic, and then I have Uh, the Nazi, uh, the Third Reich, and then I have uh, a chapter on occupation when there is no German state, right? This kind of statelessness moment. And then I have East Germany and West Germany and then reunified Germany. Um, So in some sense, it's an extraordinarily conventional chronology. Um, But what interests me on the one hand is how different states work differently with the kind of uh, sort of geopolitics of food, but also the ways in which there are uh, sort of similarities. Um, And so I uh, sort of most obviously, I suppose, my, my chapter on the Third Reich talks about race. Um, this is uh, obvious insofar as anybody talking with the Third Reich has to talk about race. and, and clearly, uh, race was central to the Nazi government in a way it was not central to other German states, right? Um but and, and so what I'm interested in that chapter is i I'm uh, my general argument, I guess I would say, is that uh, the food system, the industrial food system, is really constitutive for how race as a category of modern identity is shaped, and vice versa. Um, that race as a modern, sort of construct is really tied to ways in which we uh, consume and produce food. And so that argument itself is not an argument about the Third Reich, but an argument about the uh, sort of race, I guess. But the Third Reich is such a graphic and extreme place to see this working out. Um, and, and that's kind of how I try to work through the chapters that I, they're each thematic and chronological, but I'm, um, the themes I'm trying to show are not necessarily specific to that era, but sort of coalesce at, the, at particular moments in particularly dramatic ways. Um, and ultimately, I guess, in some sense, the larger goal or sort of a lar- maybe one larger goal of the book is for um is to break out of um, ironically, to cut this fixation on states. Um, so you'll see this so that we'll talk about race in the Third Reich. And if it's not the Third Reich, then race is not so important. Or will talk about canteens in East Germany. And if it's not socialism and like a super extreme, Scarcity society, then canteens aren't so important, you know, or whatever it is, or talk about, and so that these kind of assumptions about how states work, and assumptions that certain states have certain food issues, but other states do not. Some states are hungry states, and some states are well-fed states by definition. Um, those kind of assumptions are what my book is trying to work against, and 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 Germany is just such a remarkable place to do that kind of work because you just, have, like I said, and who else has that many states in seventy-five years? It's just amazing, right? So you can really. Work through them one by one in a way that's exciting to a historian. I
1: think. No, that's exactly right, and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about your book is that you say, you know, early on in the book you say that um, all states, all modern states, grapple in one way or another with with food and its and its its production, its distribution, uh, and it and food intersects in all modern states with questions of of race, for example, or of gender. But Germany gives you. That's one of the things that makes studying German history very fascinating to those people who do it. I think is that it, Germany gives you it condenses all of the modern state forms in one nation um, uh, in a in a pretty compact period of time, um, which is you know extraordinary. Um, so maybe maybe I guess maybe the next thing would be to ask you about uh, the sort of East and West. You 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 have a new way. In some ways, you present a new Cold War history in this book, and you say, you, you know, that you're trying to write a history of East and West Germany, of divided Germany, um, as an entangled history. Why don't you talk about that a little
0: bit? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I'm certainly not the first person to to say that or even to, uh, you know, sure. use that phrase at all. Um, and that's, I think that's, it's been a trend that's really been on the sort of growing in the past 10 years, I guess. Um, And actually a lot of people from Michigan have been part of that move Um, and it's partially methodological. So there's been a move away from, I guess, what we call top-down history or political history or um, uh, sort of geopolitical history towards often a move towards everyday life, um, exploring cultural history, women's history. Um, So there's been this shift. There's been that general shift, I'd say, in exploring uh, the Eastern Bloc or the former Eastern Bloc generally. And then also, especially, of course, in the case of the GDR. Um, So... I'm certainly very influenced by that work, um, but sort of separately, although related to that has been also uh, a lot of historians asking, what is the relevance of the GDR for the 20th century um, or for the history of Germany? Um, another like little anecdote I remember, um, so I'd lived in, in East Berlin for a year and I moved there in 1999. So I guess, in, in, or, yeah, so in 2000, the summer of 2000, I was, I spent my first, I went to Kassel, which is a small West German city. It was my first time actually in West Germany And I was doing a summer program, actually, the International Women's University, which was funded by the West German or the German government, kind of a remarkable gender studies program. And I um, had my first sort of extended contact with West German society. And I remember asking my roommate, who is a a very nice uh, West German woman, um, it was something it was like the day of national unity or the day of reunification or the day of you know, the, the day celebrating the Venda or whatever. Never asking her. So, I think in Berlin these events were like really a big deal, but in Kassel there was like absolutely nothing. You know, whenever we were talking to her, like asking some sort of stupid question like, what did the Venda mean to you? Or what do you think about the GDR? And she was like, it meant absolutely nothing. Like nothing changed in West Germany after reunification. And I remember I was so shocked. And it was like so, again so interesting. I was like, really? But that can't be. And then I was thinking maybe nothing changed for her, you know. But it was just so <laughs> like again, so kind of remarkable this um this idea that is actually very kind of normal and widespread amongst academics as well as amongst ordinary people that, you know, West East Germany mattered a lot to East Germans, but mattered very little to West Germans and West Germany. Um, and that just seemed so implausible to me. <laughs> Anybody who's interested in World War II or the Holocaust just seems implausible, you know, somehow it just seemed implausible. So I think my whole interest in the GDR generally has been uh, that sort of dual, um, the the relationship between the two. And again, living in, in Germany after reunification, it again, seems particularly implausible since West Germans were so invested in talking about East Germans a certain way, clearly it must've mattered, you know, before reunification. I mean, so
1: um,
0: that idea that, that these were, these, I wouldn't say they're two stories of the, I mean, it's not so much that they're two sides of the same hole or something, but that um, if we're interested in, Germany or interested in the legacy of World War II or interested in whatever the history of industrial economy whatever it is that we find interesting about German history in the 20th century that must also be a story of the GDR as well as the FRG I mean after all the centrality of communism to German history you know Absolutely. it's it's central to German history up until 1945 and then all of a sudden 1945 it just moves to the GDR so if it was important before 1945, it must still be important, you know, even if it's in the GDR, you know what I mean? Like, it's these kind of sort of logical issues that seemed uh, implausible to me. Um, so I think that's that's been something that generally really interests me about post-war German history. I mean, Germany is the only uh, Cold War divided country in Europe and one of only two in in the world, right? And um, so it's, it is uh, kind of a remarkable case study. And and um, again, as I said, I think what makes my book uh, unusual, I mean, I know what makes it unusual is that I started my project, I began my research at, in East Germany. And the reason that's unusual is because my topic is really not a, it's not a clearly conceptual, I mean, it's not a, it's not a clearly bound topic, right? My topic really was food. So there's no, you know, it's everywhere and it's nowhere. There's no place to find food so i kind of began with food and i went to the gdr and i asked the east german archivists and the east german experts to help me define food in a way that i can approach without thinking about it it was just intuitive that's what this place i started because i was living there but then when i went to west germany i tried to find the equivalent sources and i said they either weren't there or they were in different places and that was already that interesting to me and i think that makes a different history um because the places that i look If you look in different places, you get different stories, right? right? So looking at the history of school lunches, for example, um, is a totally different way of thinking about West Germany, Um, you know, and as well as East Germany. But because I started, you know, I wouldn't have even, nobody working on West Germany would ever think to write about school lunches because there aren't any school lunches. So you would never think of you to write about them. But when you start in the GDR where they had one of the world's largest and most successful school lunches, then you have a topic and you go to West Germany, you're like, what happened to your school lunches? You know, and then you kind of come up with a really interesting story. So I think that, um, that, again, it was not deliberate, it was just coincidental, but it, it also really shaped the project and my sense of, I guess what you can call entangled or intertwined histories in really interesting ways. Yes, it's
1: very, that's fascinating. You know, it, you, what you just said about school lunches reminded me of when I was, I was, when I was a senior in high school, I was, uh, this was in 1985, 1986, and I was um, living in a very, very small village in the far, far north of, of what was then West Germany, and very near the north sea and very near the danish border i mean really far north and um in what's called Nordfriesland. and i remember when i found when i learned that we would go home in the middle of the day and have lunch i thought really how well what will happen then and it was just the most amazing thing to me and i thought i thought about my mother who was a working woman and worked you know worked <laughs> out, outside of the home um and i thought how would my mom do that How would my mom (laughs) come home and feed us? But so that, no, these, and the intersections, the many intersections in your book between, you know, Mm -hmm. state policy, ideology, gender Mm -hmm. history, the history of the body are really, I think that's, those are all just, there's also a wonderful, for me as a cultural historian, you're also a cultural historian, um, the way that you've managed to combine a history of the state or many iterations of the state with cultural history and gender history is very... Very, very sophisticated and very, very impressive, I think. Um, I wonder if uh, one of the things, one of the things that you said in the book that really, and you had an article about this too, and I thought it was really interesting. You talked about, I just want to, let's go back to post, post, immediate post-war Germany under the Mm -hmm. occupation. One of the memories, uh, one of the, one of the memories that looms largest Or loomed largest, let's say, among that among that generation who were adults in the immediate post-war period, was of starvation, and you have this very you have this very interesting article about the fact that there there actually wasn't any starvation, and but people who were um, um, you know German officials were able to convince the Allies that there was. Uh, which is a fascinating thing. Can you can you talk about that a little bit and, and the sort of intersection between, you know, th- there's a there's a very strong memory there of something that just didn't really happen.
0: Well, you're of course posing it in a very <laughs> pointed way, and I think one of the one of the I think largest um, sort of projects in some sense of the book is to think about the category of hunger, um, which was something I was not originally interested in or had thought much about, but it became. It's that category of hunger that ultimately shaped the project in the sense that, you know, sources kept saying, no, it's about hunger. It's about our hunger and our hunger began here and no, it began here. And this is when it began. This is when I remember hunger. And this is when the hunger ended, but then it started again. And, and, um, and that kind of, um, the power of that hunger discourse and hunger memory was, was I kept being like, I can't believe there's more hunger. I kept finding yeah. more, you know, and, and it's it really kind of leads you back historically. And that I found that fascinating. And of course, what's so interesting about hunger is that it it is a real thing. So people die from it, right? But it really is, um, uh, it, it is a category that is not definable from a purely mm-hmm. medical perspective. That is to say there is no medical way to define starvation. So literally some people can die on the same diet that other people can survive and even do okay on. Um, and there is, and this is a huge dilemma for, uh, for famine relief, for example. Um, it's a huge dilemma for welfare policy on from states. Um, and it, and I think that dilemma is actually really important for understanding a lot of the big, uh, concerns of our modern age. So people are always like, oh, it's such a paradox that the poor are obese and all these things. And I think that points to the kind of complicated, the complicated nature of the category yes. of hunger. Um, and, and so again, I, as somebody who was not really particularly well versed in german history um, <laughs> was interested in hunger and i started to do some research on hunger and i was thinking oh that must have been really important during uh world war ii and I remember, I, i'm going to do some research and sort of medical understandings of hunger during world war ii to see how that you know influenced the post-war germany's and i was looking for sort of research on survivors of concentration camps right where i which i assumed would be the most studied and sort of obvious hunger bodies that would have been talked about and discussed in the medical literature. And what I found like totally to my shock, and again, this is not academic shock, just personal shock, is that the medical journals are full of studies of German civilians, not of concentration camp victims. And it was those civilians that ended up playing a huge role in the kind of hunger medical, medicalization of hunger. And Doctors were quite quite clear and open about why that was because it was very very difficult to do studies on hol- on camp survivors. They were so hungry that they essentially were all dying. You know, like the death rates after liberation were even higher than during the Third Reich yeah. often um it was incredibly depressing and horrible to work with them for the medical profession um and the ethics of the whole process were highly debated whereas german civilians there was no oversight um they were not that hungry so you could do experiments with them you know you could sort of compare different feeding techniques and they were incredibly enthusiastic about being studied as hunger victims so they would volunteer themselves and they in fact encouraged this kind of medical treatment so you had this interesting moment where i wouldn't say it's about it's not about lying Mm -hmm. or about deliberate deception i mean it's not who's to say if somebody's hungry or not hungry i mean clearly they yes. were hungry, um, but the, the ways in which that hunger got sort of defined and recognized, instrumentalized, and again, not necessarily through any particular, not necessarily because of agendas on the part of individuals, but because of a kind of, you know, sort of a commingling of various things going on led to this kind of medicalization of German hunger. And, and that then happened alongside, and this is what my article uh, talks about, alongside sort of dramatic geopolitical shifts, essentially what's going to become the rise of the Cold War, Um, which made and and I should say again, uh, also the reemergence of Hoover as a leading figure, Hoover Hoover as a leading figure in food relief. And he had initiated food relief after World War One and he'd always had a particular interest in Germany and a real belief that Germany was the key to Um, Preventing communism, so that essentially uh, a well fed Germany was the only way to stop communist takeover of Europe. So there's kind of these like biographical issues, but also medical issues and and larger geopolitical issues that all come together to kind of make German hunger uh, seeming particularly pressing at a moment when it actually was losing, sort of, from a medical perspective, I guess, significance or it was um, paling in comparison with other hungers that were happening at the same time. Yeah, right. I mean, I think the centrality of the Berlin airlift is kind of an amazing thing. I mean, yeah, and I actually talk at, at some length about this in the book. Like it's this amazing moment um, that's supposed to prove the the sort of generosity of the of the um, you know of the. Actually, I found these amazing documents from the U.S. Air Force, and they said after Hiroshima very explicitly, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we're really psyched to do this airlift because we've got a really bad reputation. Um, so we're going to show people that we're going to drop chocolates and candy and not bombs. Um, and and so you have this kind of amazing like also these these varied agendas going on, um, in which Germans always kind of somehow are in the heart, the heart of these uh, larger discussions. Yeah,
1: fascinating. Listen, I wonder if uh, you, you use it amazingly, you know, historians always love to talk about sources, I think, or I mean, I do, and I think a lot of us do. Why don't you talk a little bit about your extremely varied source base? Because you use everything in this book from, you know, the kind of archival government sources that that we find when we go to, to big state archives, and then down to everyday life sources, let's say, of, of Cookbooks and things like that. Can you can you talk about the, you know, I mean, some of the complexities of working with such a such a varied uh, base of sources.
0: Well, I think on the, I mean, I guess it's complex, but in my mind, that when I was doing the project, it was just what's so awesome about food as a topic. I mean, and it sounds like a cliche, but it's just really true. Food is everywhere. So literally, you know, I would go to an archive, but then I'd be waiting in the train station. For 20 minutes, and I could go anywhere, and I'd find some source for me to use. You know what I mean? So I I remember wandering into a bookstore next to the train station at Leipzig, and I, um, I just visited like the the Leipzig City Archives, and I'd gotten all these formal documents, and I walked to the bookstore, and they there on the bookstore shelf was a copy of uh, a little pamphlet for five Deutschmark and it was um, mit wenig so it's bread spreads with very little fat. And I had just seen it was kind of incredible. Uh, the German appeal to the government, to the allied government, to allow them to publish this, which was the first printed, the first official printed document made in Germany after they of the war. So this was the first kind of, and it was that cookbook about yes. because of the food shortages. And so I got a copy of it, you know, and it's just, so it's just like, that. that's, that was, of course, like amazingly, the timing was just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, what are the odds of finding this little booklet? But on the other hand, like, that's what, you know, so in some sense, you know, you could include whatever you want and it's all, food's always going to be there. Um, I, I, what the, the struggle for me, I think was that different topics, uh, you know, that there's an, Im- of course there's an imbalance in the, in, in the chapters in some sense, like my chapter on geopolit, you know, it's, it's hard for me to find the balance between everyday life and, you know, state sources. And of course you always wish you could have more of the other one, sure. when
1: you-, <laughs> you know, That's right. um, um, if you had to say, if you had to sort of sum up in, in, in some way, what you thought the main contribution of the book or for you, let's just say this, maybe this is more interesting. Um, what what would you say is the contribution that the book makes that you're mo- that you found most exciting? That you found most exciting to research, or that you found most exciting to write about? Is it a hard question?
0: <laughs> it's a hard, well, of course, it's a big question. I mean, yes, it's, it is. It's a big that, question. that I find most. I mean, I mean, I guess maybe for all historians, right? What excites us about our work is the ways in which we find it relevant mm, or yeah. connected um, to contemporary struggles and contemporary issues. And um, and of course, what motivates me in my book is that I, of course, keep thinking, wow, this is so going yeah. on today, you know? And um, and I mean, you mentioned even in the introduction, you mentioned Instagram photos. And I mean, and I think that this, um, the kind of contemporary moment of food discourse, the incredible growing gap between sort of elite food discourse and everyday food discourse, the kind of demonization of, of poor eating ways and food ways. I mean, all that stuff makes um, makes me continually be interested in, in, in the book and the chapters that I wrote it. And I mean, maybe in some ways, uh, the chapter that I was invested in actually, uh, or that I was sort of the most personal for me to write in some ways, is similar to the story you said about when you found out that everyone went home for dinner and for lunch and you were like, what do, what do the women do? Um, is that is, was a chapter, I think it's chapter five, which is about, um, the home cooked meal and the, um, and, uh, it's, it's essentially, a, a dis- so I compare, this is a moment where I compare East and West Germany and uh, th- I think there's probably few single issues where in East and West Germany are more different than the issue of women's labor, right? In, in the GDR, the GDR had the world's highest rate right. of female employment, right? Almost every single adult woman is employed in paid labor and at West Germany had one of the lowest rates for an industrial country in female paid labor. And you know, like they had very, very conservative policies married women had to get permission from their husbands to get a job until the 70s like you know it was a very so very very and still today you know unified germany has uh, shockingly low rates of, of yeah. female employment and so they're really really different you know in terms of female employment but what was interesting to me is when i was um sort of looking I, I was starting with school lunches and trying to understand how female employment was understood in these two different countries is that despite these radical differences both states were really kind of invested in this feminization of cooking and this idea of a home-cooked meal and especially this idea that women needed to cook for their kids and it was something that was very interesting to me. I mean, I'm you know I love to cook and I love to eat and I'm a big believer in cooking and all this stuff. But I also have to say, wow! Like it would have been crazy. I mean, like it's it's so ahistorical and illogical to somehow claim that a mother has to cook for her children for good health. You know, there's no, um, and, and the fact that it was in East German socialism as well as in you know West German conservative Christian family discourse, I found really striking. And I and I think because you know and. I mean, less so now, but a couple of years ago, that was actually in the media a lot in the U.S. And, and I see this kind of discourse of, of healthy kids and healthy moms. And um and I see how it weighs on women and children and men, you know, and maybe really think about sort of the gendering of the economy uh, sort of in ways that I found. So I found that. And I think. Yeah, I found that sort of personally engaging. Yeah, I can imagine.
1: I, you know, and it must be very gratifying, too, to be working on something that is obviously so much on the front burner and, in, in, well, weirdly on the front burner and and not. I mean, you know, you and I were talking earlier about yeah. the ways that... Um, I'm thinking about your point a few moments ago about the difference between um, discourses about food among people who can afford very expensive food and uh, and people who can't. And I, I think... Uh, it's interesting to me that I almost never hear people that I would think would be very attuned to the environmental impact of what they eat. I almost never hear them talk about it. So the politics of all that are really fascinating. And that must be a gratifying thing about working in this, in this area, um, because you probably, particularly working with students, you probably have moments when you can bring you know, immediate illumination. You, you, know, you can talk to students about what they ate for lunch and what it means.
0: Well, it's funny because it's also a highly, highly sensitive issue and um, one that's actually very difficult to teach in ways that I think I wasn't um, sort of I was naively unaware of. I should have known better because in Germany, I remember I would I mean, talking, for example, talking about um, suggesting or even quite explicitly saying that. food rhetoric from the third reich was nazified or was highly racialized it explicitly and directly implicates people's grandmothers and mothers in 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 ways that germans were very very angry about would yell at me about during my research and it's even similar when you're teaching about food in the us i remember teaching uh, when i first began teaching food i i was teaching a class on um on the construction of the american meal as sort of an iconic uh pros- meal of prosperity and and family consumption and i started with the unit on Thanksgiving, and I talked about sort of the the racial constructions of Thanksgiving, and I had a Native American critique, and it was a fairly, I hadn't thought of it as being a particularly problematic or something, but the students were so angry. I mean, it was amazing. There was a real uh, tremendous, uh, this idea that you could denigrate or take, you know, sort of politicize something that was seen as so deeply unpolitical as their family Thanksgiving meal or as what I eat this morning. And... Um, just so something I think about a lot. So it's easy, of course, as an American, it's a lot easier to write about Germany from the U.S. But it's harder when you're in the middle, of, you know. Uh, and yeah. I no, <laughs> no, I hear what you're saying, and I mean, you know, until you until you said that, I mean, the people have
1: very strong moral and emotional investments in the way that they eat or the the sort of things that um, that their families enjoy eating. So no, I can see, you know, until you said that, I, I'm sure I would never have thought about the way that. Um, the the kinds of landmines that just talking about, you know, this, um, uh, you know, one, one form of food or another might, might really step on toes.
0: I mean, in fact, this is one of the things that scientists, you know, uh, sort of nutritionists, but doctors, but but also sociologists, the other have talked about food habits or, or, some ways the single most difficult aspect of a population to change so it's extraordinarily hard to get people to eat differently people will change the way they eat but not due to the influence of the state (laughs) you know so and that's seen as being this constant and really deeply troublesome issue um and you know people hold on to their food ways for a lot of different interesting reasons and they rationalize and justify their food ways and they change their food ways but it's all done with a What's interesting about food is that it's so deeply personal, individual. So every individual believes, every individual believes they eat the way they eat because it's the way they truly want to eat, right? I remember having... Uh, students tell me, uh, this is a thing I used to hear a lot about. There must have been some discussion in a newspaper or something. They kept saying, you know, it's a natural human condition to love bacon. And they would cite these studies that obviously never existed, that if you took newborns, the one food every newborn in the world would reach for is bacon, which was such an amazing idea. Since bacon is one of the foods that probably consumed by the smallest percent, it is a, a huge portion of the world it. that does not eat any form of pork, right? So it was kind of an but, you know, people really believe that. And so, and of course, in Chicago, which is a pork loving city, there's a whole, you know, this kind of idea that bacon is this universal Uh, food uh, is really strong. And so, and those ideas are so deep that you really can't, challenging them is something that's very hard to do. And so as a historian, you have the opportunity to sort of try to theorize and and contextualize them in ways that hopefully are not as directly uh, troublesome as telling somebody, you know, you're eating the way you eat because of X or Y, which really doesn't
1: work well. (laughs) Right. No, that is just, that is absolutely fascinating. Well, you know, Alice, you've been extremely generous with your time, and, and I, I I appreciate that, and I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate that very much, too. Um, I wonder if you have just a few moments to to talk to us about what you're going to work on next, whether or not it has anything to do with food. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Um- So I actually have two projects uh, going on and I'm still, I wobble between them. I'm sort of working on both of them simultaneously and and they both come out of this project in some ways or out of my interests, but neither of them are really food projects directly. Um, The first is something I've been thinking about a lot uh, since my undergraduate days, actually. And it's uh, sort of, I guess I'd say a cultural and medical history Mm -hmm. of anorexia nervosa. Um, And that's something that I became interested in because anorexia has been a key sort of theoretical model for historians, for feminist theorists, theoreticians, and also for historians of capitalism in a lot of interesting ways. Um, and that sort of, I'd say, academic or theoretical framing for anorexia has gone alongside to and actually sometimes intersected with the medical discourse of anorexia. Um, and I did a little research on this, um, because it's also in a lot of ways, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's in some ways, a German, a German story as well. Um, the sort of founder of anorexia or the founder of the modern anorexia disease in some sense, or the, the conceptualization as a modern disease and treatment was uh, a German Jewish doctor who fled the third Reich and came to the U S and, 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 and so there's really interesting ways in which it also becomes a story um, of, of Jewishness and Germanness and Americanness. And then the cold war gets implicated in very interesting ways in, in, in theorizing capitalism and communism. And so that's kind of, and um yeah, that's, that's obviously very interesting. And it's uh, uh I guess, a, a sort of a feminist and medical history in some ways. And then the other project that I'm working on comes out of the other side of my food project. Um, so if that's the medical history. this This project is an interest in environmental history, which I think you mentioned briefly is an obvious kind of framing for uh, the story that I tell. and one that my book um, is sort of the one angle of my book that I don't do, I didn't do as much as I wanted to do, which is really in some sense the the material, let's say, agricultural component, the land itself, um, the, the the history of that food production. And so I become increasingly interested in environmental history. Um, in Germany, uh, again, early on when I was living in Germany, I spent a week um, in, in sort of the borderlands between East and West Germany on the Elbe in a, a rural farming community, which was the—I um, didn't know this—but this was the center of the this was uh, the center of the sort of anti-nuclear movement in West Germany, Gorleben. Um, and I was just sort of talked to and witnessed these amazing interactions between um, West German activists, anti-nuclear activists, and the kind of local agri- farming population and the incredible hostility and the violence between these two communities as they were sort of co- semi-coexisting in the space. And that movement was, you know, at this point, 30 years old. So they both formed these kind of semi-permanent communities. And they were both very invested in a uh, certain idea of German, of what the German land should be. Um, and they were very, very had very, very strong and powerful rhetorics about what made good German soil and good German land and, and especially clean German land or healthy German land. And so, again, that was one of those like personal experiences that sort of has haunted me since then. It was just such an interesting experience. And so, and Germany, of course, has been, uh, I'd say probably the leader in Europe in, in terms of environmental discourse, environmental policy. Um, and that's actually got a long and checkered past in Germany, um, although environmentalism everywhere has is a complicated uh, theme um and there have been a lot of people who've unpacked it in relationship to the Third Reich, for example. And there's in- an increasing amount of literature um, now on, on, on East and West Germany as well. And so I'm also kind of interested in, in looking at this idea of what makes clean, what makes a good environment or a healthy, a beautiful environment, a clean environment, and what's particularly German about that. Both
1: sound really fascinating, I have to say. And and we'll and those of us who uh, who who follow your work will be looking for them for sure. Um, we've just been talking with Alice Weinreb. Uh, professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago, about her wonderful new book. And I I, I powerfully encourage you listeners to, to, to go out and check it out. Find it at the library, get your copy. It's called Modern Hungers, Food and Power in 20th Century Germany. It was just published this year by Oxford University Press. I strongly recommend it. Alice, thanks so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much, Monica, for having me.